Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast. This is Doug Heikkinen. The Power Your Advice podcast is designed to bring you new ideas, why those ideas should be considered, and how to implement them into your business. This podcast is brought to you by Ivers.xyz, the most helpful place advisors can come to to grow their minds and businesses. And today, I'm again going to turn it over to the reins to the president of Adhesion Wealth, Barrett Ayers, who has two fantastic guests of his own to talk about M&A. Barrett, take it away. Fantastic. Thanks, Doug. And uh, uh, thanks for everybody joining. Appreciate it. Glad everybody tuned in. It's going to be a really exciting special session we have planned for the day. Uh, again, as Doug mentioned, my name is uh, Barrett Ayers. I'm the president of Adhesion Wealth. And I have a really distinct privilege today facilitating one of what I think is probably one of the more interesting and pressing topics facing the industry today, especially the investment advisory community. And we're joined by two of the leading experts on the topic. And uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about investment advisory M&A trends, and we've got Stan Greger of Summit Financial and David DeVoe of DeVoe & Company joining us today. So I want to just quickly introduce our panels, and we'll get uh, right into it. So first off, uh, in terms of uh, bios, I'd like to introduce David DeVoe. He's uh, the founder and CEO of DeVoe & Company, which was launched in 2011. He's considered one of the industry's preeminent thought leaders in RA practice management and has been in the space for over 17 years. In fact, Barron's recently called David uh, the RIA M&A guru. So prior to DeVoe Company, David was at Schwab Advisor Services, where he launched and oversaw Schwab's transition planning platform for over eight years and provided M&A and succession planning services to RIAs. Before that, he was at the strategy group at American Express. Also joining us today, Stan Greger. He is the CEO of Summit Financial. He's been involved in acquiring and integrating some of the largest and most complicated banking, wealth management, insurance, capital market businesses and cultures with a demonstrated track record of increasing productivity, profitability, and shareholder value. Most recently, Stan was the founder and CEO of Kenner Fitzgerald Wealth Partners. And prior to that, he was the head of Wells Fargo's Wealth Management, Eastern U.S. Markets, and president of Wachovia Wealth Markets. Uh, prior to that, Stan was uh, the CEO of Commerce Capital Markets, Quick and Riley, and co-CEO of Bank of America Investment Services. So thank you both very much for joining us today. The format for today's call, for today's podcast, is going to be a rapid-fire Q&A session. So I'm going to ask the same questions to Stan and David, and we're going to get through these questions. It'll be an exciting, lively topic, and uh, let's just go ahead and get started. So I'm going to start with David first. And uh, David, you know, it's obviously it's been an exceptional, extraordinary year for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is the virus and the impact that's had on our businesses. So what factors are you thinking have been driving the M&A activity this year? Yeah, Barrett, uh, thanks for having me. Honored to be here um, and great to work with Stan on this too. I'll, I'll tell you, you mentioned COVID. It's been a roller coaster and a pretty aggressive roller coaster. When COVID hit, I think me and many others thought that uh, 2020 would be a slowdown, the first slow year that we'd have for M&A in close to six or seven years. But um it came back quickly. As a matter of fact, we we had a couple months of slowdown, and now we're back to record levels of mergers and acquisitions. So, to answer your question, I think it's driven by a couple factors. One is likely COVID itself. I think this will play out more over the next couple quarters, but it's a shot across the bow. It's it's sort of the reality of of the need for succession planning. COVID is is really a life or death situation. So, I think um, that uh, that has uh, sort of calcified some folks and their intention to put a succession plan in place. And oftentimes that, that leads to mergers and acquisitions. But there's other factors that are driving it as well. You know, probably about a year and a half ago, we hit a, an all-time high in terms of valuations for the industry. 
the COVID did not slow that down much. We had a little bit of a breather and then, uh, you know, the market shrugged it off to a degree and the profitability of these firms returned. So valuations are high. That that helps bring people to uh, to the table to assess whether or not they should buy, sell or merge. But probably the biggest driver of mergers and acquisitions in today's environment is scale. Uh, REAs, whether small, medium or large, they're interested in gaining scale, the benefits of scale. The efficiencies, the, the the power of a broader platform and services and capabilities, and that's probably the biggest driver as it has been for a couple of years. Fantastic, thanks, David. So, so Stan, let, let me get your perspective on this. You come from a uh, slightly different perspective, obviously. What what trends are you seeing? What factors are you uh, feeling driving the M and A activity this year? Yeah. Number one, thank you for having me on the panel, and uh, I, I too am excited to be working with David as well. Um, this this pandemic, believe it or not, has accelerated, uh, I guess, buyers and sellers to think at it in a different way. But what we're seeing is that there are different stages in, in a seller's mind, what, right? whether they're in the growth stage, they're in the recapture or reload some of their, uh, their working capital, or they're in, in the transition stage where they're looking to uh, transition and retire in a certain time frame. But Overall, uh, what we are seeing is if, if an advisor can be part of an M&A transaction where they can grow their practice, that seems to be one of the number one f- features that they're looking for. Uh, the multiples, the money, uh, across everything we see, it's pretty consistent. The, the, the multiples are close to, you know, close to similar across different channels, but it's the growth piece. And uh, if, if I was giving anybody advice on what I would be looking for, uh, if I was considering to be joining with another partner, I would look at one good, I get the capital, I get paid something for doing so. But what does it look like from a growth perspective? Can I, if I join this team and join this new organization and become partners with this this group, will it help me grow? So that that's the number one thing that that we're seeing and and I feel is is probably one of the most important things that somebody should consider when they're looking at possibly doing something. Right. So, so Stan, you mentioned growth and David, you talked about scale. Obviously those are really important factors and it's the reason you'd be at the table to begin with presumably. And so David, let, let me, let me ask you then. So as it relates to valuations, if we look back historically, uh, is there a premium built into the market with all the demand? What do, what do valuations look like relative to prior years? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting in this industry. I've, I've been doing this, as you mentioned, 17 years now. And some cases I've heard, oh, there's a 50 buyers for every seller, et cetera. And they're driving up the, the, the value of these deals. It's not really the case. You know, this isn't tulips back in, uh, back in the 1800s. Um, people aren't blindly throwing money around just because there's other bidders at the table. Um, today's buyers are sophisticated uh, management teams, um, often backed by private equity that are doing intelligently designed deals. Um, so what's happening? I mean, the, the last time we had a high in valuations that rivals what we're seeing today was back in 2008. It was unsophisticated buyers in many cases. It was folks that you know had a checkbook and they were throwing about around money and then when they shouldn't have. And those, those businesses got wiped away shortly after uh, early 2008 when their business models turned upside down. Now, I, I wasn't, you know, it took about 12 years to get back to those, those record highs. And I was pleasantly surprised, I guess, for lack of a better word, when it was eclipsed, those highs back from 2008. And I say pleasantly surprised because in today's market, 
these high valuations that some firms are paying, not all firms, but these high valuations are justified. And part of it has to do with what Stan alluded to. Many of the buyers in today's environment can increase the profitability of an acquired firm and they can help that firm grow faster. And if you can increase profits and make uh, an acquisition grow faster, you can logically pay more. Um, and that's what's driving up these high valuations. Now there's an asterisk there. Um, these firms that have developed a better mousetrap, these enterprise level organizations that have truly designed a business model that can unlock that profitability and, and growth trajectory um, can pay those high valuations. But the, the, the buyer down the street, you know, the REA in your study group, they don't have that special mousetrap. And consequently, you shouldn't expect that any buyer is going to be able to rival some of the high valuations we see with a certain set of firms. Gotcha. So, so it's so the the story you're painting then is a little, little bit about better synergies than perhaps before, and better foundational uh, architecture and the ability to help accelerate uh, the firm being acquired. And I guess to that point, well, Stan, let me ask you then: when you're thinking about what RAA aggregators are looking for when it relates to a potential acquisition, it's not all financial, though, right? I mean, uh, I know a big part of it is, as David suggested, there's obviously. You know, there, there's ways to accelerate revenue and EBITDA and profit, but uh, what are some other factors that might uh, might be considerations other than pure financial factors? Right, great, great question. And putting the financial picture aside, it, it's going to be will will the firm that's acquiring the other firm uh, be better off by bringing in that team? So sometimes it may be human capital, right? So I'll use the the CIO office as a great example. The acquiring firm may have uh, may have an opportunity to enhance that investment offering by bringing in some better talent or financial planning. So if if financials are not what we're discussing, we're discussing why would two firms be better off together? It's most likely going to be around the expertise, the human capital, or the the services that you would get by bringing those two worlds together. That's probably the biggest reason. Yeah, so so let's stay on that for a minute then. So a lot of what you're talking about is uh, capabilities, but what about what about culture? When you start talking to other folks and you talk to sellers, what are things that they should be thinking about as they evaluate their options as it relates to culture potentially? Yeah, great, great question, and and probably the most uh, glossed over piece of of of, of M and A work. A lot of times, multiples and dollar signs seem to you know to, to win that battle. But uh, I've seen so many deals go awry where the culture is not is not mixing, right? You, you have two different cultures, different styles, different approaches, and uh, both sides become very unhappy with with, with the transaction. Uh, that's one of the top things that that you know we look at too right? when we're looking at doing a deal with a group. Uh, cultures matter, and culture does matter. If if it, you can't. You can't just throw money at it and make culture change. I've I've not seen that work in you know in the big companies that I was part of, or, e or even the smaller ones that we're working with. Culture matters, right? And I suppose the other the other factor to consider too is it's also not something that you can see and touch and feel and test for um, as you're going through the diligence process either. So, I guess David, to that end, what what uh, what other important valuation factors um, are you seeing contribute to uh, to successful transactions. So obviously there's the financial, there's the uh, the culture piece. We talked about capabilities. What are your thoughts on some of the important factors to make things successful? Yeah, yeah. Two two quick cents on culture because um, spot on. I mean, ultimately it's a it's a critical 
component of the equation. And, and we talk about, gee, how do you make the intangible tangible, right? How do you, how do you determine culture? How do you, how do you evaluate that? And I, I just encourage them. I'm, I'm happy to chat more offline or, or later on the call, but, you know, asking certain questions of a buyer or seller, um, typically that have to do with stressful situations can be great indicators of a culture. So, you know, in 2008, how'd you, how'd you support your clients during that period? Or gee, if you have an abusive client, you know, that's abusing your employees, what do you do about that? There's no wrong answer there, but there's different cultural cues, you know, gee, if, if, a, a, if an employee is underperforming, you know, um, how do you treat that client, that, that, um, employee, gee, you know, I just struggle with it. I can't let people go or, or, you know, we rip off the bandaid pretty quickly, all those things, um, um, essentially questions about aver- adverse situations can help, you know, provide some windows into culture, but to switching from intangible to tangible, uh, you know, what drives valuation? Uh, the more, you know, me, the more you'll find out I'm a nerd. Um, we have a 30,000 cell discounted cash flow model. We've had like seven Ivy league MBAs and two CFAs work on it. I mean, it's an elegant work of art to value a firm, but despite these 30,000 cells and these myriad of different factors that go into what, what a firm is worth the valuation, they all fall into three major categories. Stan alluded to one earlier. It's the growth of that organization. Is this a machine that can sustain growth and how does it grow? Um, second component is the profitability of this firm. EBITDA you know, is much better than EBOC or other things we can talk about as well. But the profitability is a, is a great metric for how effectively run this organization is. And ultimately it's the profit that pays back the investor on the investment. And then the third category is the risk the risk associated with this organization, um, the risk associated with this transaction, 48 different risk factors that we look at when we value a firm. So um, growth, profitability, and risk ultimately will drive the valuation of an organization. Fantastic. Thanks. And I, and I guess, Stan, from your perspective, does, does that sync with what, what you see in, the, uh, in your evaluation process as well? Um, do, you know, I guess if you were thinking about rebalancing valuation factors, What's most important to you, the financial, the culture we talked about a little bit, uh, other intangibles, the risk? I mean, help, help me understand a little bit about the way you think about those. Yeah, yeah. And I, I echo pretty much what, what David said. So uh, we go through a series of, of questions uh, on both ends. Uh, it starts off with why would you consider selling, right? So trying to understand the psyche of are you running away from something or you're running to something? And, and that helps us sculpt the rest of the conversation. You know, asking them from a cultural standpoint, what are you expecting in a partnership? Uh, if you were in charge, what would you want, right? If, if you were in charge of this new partnership, how would you structure things? And, and you listen to what people come back with and it really helps sculpt you to understand what they're looking for. What's that culture look like? Sometimes it is a, a very valid reason of, listen, I have great ideas, I have a great infrastructure, but I just ran out of the capital to expand. I need your, I need your wallet to help me do that. Uh, and that's okay. So yes, it's revenue. It's, 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 the, it's the EBITDA, obviously. Uh, risk is a very important piece, right? Because you don't just want people just throwing money at different ideas and not considering the risk of, of it not working out. So we, we have the same, uh, probably not the exact same uh, questions that David has, but we go through an extensive conversation with the potential sellers to understand, you know, many factors and that all goes into valuation. And the last piece I would put in there is trend, right? I'm, I'm sure you've, you've seen this and I've seen it a ton of times. 
you meet people that have all these great ideas and all these things they're going to do. They've been doing it for 25 years, but they've not done it. Right. So, so talk is cheap. At some, at some point, you have to have the ability to execute. So we look at the trends. We look at is somebody truly growing? And then we look at, you know, if we put our financial muscle behind it, is this going to help the group grow even faster? And if the answers are yes across the board, that's usually where it makes sense for us to go into a deeper conversation and look to make a partnership. That's great. Uh, thanks, Dan. And I guess so. What you're kind of describing is uh, having some introspective conversations and insight with advisors about, uh, you know, when is it time to think externally versus potentially grow internally? And I guess, uh, you know, David, help me with that too. Do you do you have conversations with advisors where you, you know, where you you prompt them to think about, you know, growth internally versus growth externally? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, uh, matter of fact, sometimes clients will come to us or prospects and say, hey, we want to buy or gee, we want to sell or we never want to do that, et cetera. Regardless of where they start, we we often encourage them to start by taking a big step back. You know, what are your goals and objectives? Forget the transaction at hand or forget what you seek to achieve. Instead, start with the goals and objectives. Um, what you seek to achieve as an organization you know, what are your goals and objectives? And that could sync up with a firm like Stans and they can unlock all this value or, and power or, or gee, maybe that leads to, to indicating they should be on their own. But the, the, the business goals and objectives, the professional roles and responsibilities, uh, a lot of advisors have, you know, sort of, um, I wouldn't say painted themselves in a corner, but their, their role is not by design. It's just what's happened over time. And this can also often be a good time to reflect on what do I enjoy doing? What am I really good at? What would I love to, to take off my plate, um, both individually and collectively as a management team? We also get into personal goals and objectives, fears and aspirations. What do you seek to achieve? What do you seek to avoid? You know, uh, we joke we're therapists with spreadsheets, but you know, part of this is, is a life decision, not just a business decision. Do you want to work two more years or 20 more years? You know, as you move toward retirement, is that, you know, on a given Friday, you stop working or you start to dial it back over time? You know, there's a variety of things that can go into that. And then finally, uh, the fourth element is economic. Is a high valuation or a, a down, bigger down payment more important? Do you want to have your your economics attached to the growth of the company, or or gee, you know, a, a, an external deal doesn't make sense because you seek to achieve economics aren't important, and you're happy to discount the firm to have your your G1 buy into the organization. So, on a on a high strategic level, and typically it's those four elements: business, professional personal and economic that can drive that decision, um, having clarity and conviction around what's most important for you and the management team can help determine whether or not internal or external is the right path forward. Fantastic. So let me wrap up with one last question um, and I'll ask both of you this question. So let me start with, with David first. So where do you see looking, I mean, obviously 2020 was a difficult year and continues to be a difficult year to handicap, obviously. But what do you see for trends in RIA kind of mergers and acquisition themes uh, 2021 and beyond? Is there something that's starting to form in your mind's eye and you're starting to see trends? Do you anticipate things changing in the future? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you when we look back, um, 2020, uh, the rubber band has snapped back. So 2020 will be the, the seventh 
successive record year of MA activity, you know, earlier in the year, none of us thought that, but sure enough, you know, uh, Q3 was the, the biggest um, quarter we've ever had, the 30 years plus of this industry. So um, what do I think is going to happen right now? We're, we're going to go through a period of a lot of transactions that got delayed earlier in the year coming to fruition. We're also going to go through a period where, where people were shocked into activity is a good thing. COVID sort of um, jarred them loose from, from delaying that succession plan in place. And that's also going to drive mergers and acquisitions because some firms are deciding, you know, gee, I'd rather partner up than try to sell internally. Or sometimes the light bulb's going off and they realize their firm's just too valuable and G2, G3 can't afford it. Um, so I expect that we'll see a couple quarters of, of these really high valuation numbers. Um, but then we're going to return to normalcy. And normalcy in this industry is likely to be year after year after year, probably five to seven years of increasing mergers and acquisitions. I mean, this is a hyper-fragmented industry, 10,000 firms. We're only seeing, you know, 150 plus firms deals a year. We just aren't seeing the volume of transactions that we need for an industry this, this size. So um, I'd like to see 30% year after year growth of M&A activity for this industry. If we're in that 30% range, which we were last year, that's that's a healthy environment. Firms like Stans can, can scale up their M&A team and, and absorb these transactions if it's that growth rate. If, if it dips below that, if it dips significantly below or goes flat, we're just going to have the supply of, of transactions that has to come on the market. And if we have a huge spike, like twice as many deals next year than, next, than this year, then it's actually going to outstrip the ability of acquirers to, to be able to acquire them all. So long answer to your question, I'll, I'll shrink it down. Uh, we're going to see, you know, hopefully five to seven plus years of, of heightened M&A activity in the industry. That's uh, fantastic. And I guess, Dan, from your perspective, what, uh, what are you guys keying in on for uh, 2021 and beyond? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, with David's uh, feelings about the increased M&A, the activity. I, I think 21, 2021 and 22 is also going to be a time of realization. And what, what I mean by that is a lot of the M&A work we have seen uh, so far has been in some of your larger shops. And, and everybody's competing for that multi-billion dollar RIA and, and they're being wooed with multiples and whatnot. I think over the next two years, a number of factors take place, which which takes us down market. And I think I think a lot of the sub billion dollar teams are going to start to realize uh, what is really most important to them. Are, are, are they do they really want to run a business or would they rather run a practice? And and they're going to start evaluating where is my time best best spent and what am I happy doing. And I, I think you're going to start to see more and more M&A in that sub-billion dollar club than, than we've seen over the last couple of years. And some of those, some of those owners, I call it the white knuckle concept uh, or white knuckle owners, that they're just holding on to that, you know, that, that philosophy and that business. And it's going, to get, it's going to continue to be more difficult and frustrating because they're not going to have the resources to scale like some of the, some of the other players around them. And I think that's going to loosen up over the next couple of years that, that a lot of those owners are going to start saying, you know what, I want to be independent, but you know, maybe I'm better off partnering with somebody that has a lot more resources and I don't have to do everything. I could do what I do best and that may be the best outcome. So 
Um, I think the numbers are definitely going up over the next couple of years. I, I think the audience is going to broaden out by not just the the over billion dollar club, but it will broaden out to the to the sub billion dollar clubs as well. Fantastic. Well, um, gentlemen, we are at the end of our time, and um, I think it was a riveting. 25 minutes, and I appreciate uh, all your fantastic insights and ideas. Enjoyed the call. I'm sure our listeners have plenty of food for thought as well. So thank you very much for your time. Thank Thank you. you. Have a wonderful day. Barrett, that was a great conversation. I'm sure our listeners are going to get a ton from this. For everyone at Iris Works production team, this is Doug Heikinen. Thank you for joining us.